Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Stephen Lungu came to the pain, painful realization of God's anger against his sin at, a, at an evangelistic tent meeting in Highfield, Rhodesia. Lungu had gone to the rally hell-bent on destruction. He and the other members of a street gang called the Black Shadows were armed with explosives. They had decided to kill as many Christians as they could. But when the gang members arrived at the meeting slightly ahead of schedule, they decided to go in for a few minutes and listen to the evangelist. Soon, Lungu was captivated by what he was hearing. Many of you are in grave danger, the preacher said. All of you have sinned. You have cheated. You have lied. You have harmed people. Stephen Lungu felt like the preacher's finger was pointing right at him. How did this man know what he had done? He thought that someone must have told the preacher all about him because those were exactly the sins that he had committed. Longu started ducking every time the preacher pointed, hoping to avoid his accusatory finger. But the evangelist kept telling him what everybody needs to hear, and that is that God knows all about our sin and will eventually judge us for it. This is where King Solomon finds himself today. Look at verse 11 with me. So the Lord said to Solomon, since you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I've commanded you, I will certainly tear the kingdom away from you and will give it to your servant. It says the Lord said to Solomon. We don't know how God delivered this warning to Solomon. Perhaps it was through a prophet. But God warned Solomon that after his death, the kingdom would be divided and his son would reign over only the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The other ten tribes would become the northern kingdom of Israel. The division of this kingdom wouldn't be the peaceful work of a diplomat, but the painful work of an angry lord. It was not simply the sin that made God angry, as if somehow the sin could be separated from the sinner. Rather, it was the man who had committed the sin who has become the personal object of God's divine wrath. 
Simply put, the Lord was angry with Solomon. And we touched on this last time. God's response confronts us with a biblical truth that most people would rather not talk about, even if they happen to believe it, which most people do not. And that biblical truth is the anger or the wrath of God. We learned last time that the anger of God is not an irrational emotion, but a righteous rejection of sin. So to say that God is angry is not to say he is guilty of some kind of irate or reckless rage. His wrath is not a character flaw. Nor nor is it an unworthy divine attribute or a blemish on God's otherwise perfect reputation. On the contrary, the wrath of God is one of his holy perfections. To say that God is angry is to express in human terms his absolute opposition to ungodliness. Uncontaminated by all the things that usually makes our anger sinful. Leon Morris defines it this way. The wrath of God is his personal divine revulsion to evil. Likewise, John Stott says that the wrath of God is continued, settled antagonism aroused only by evil and expressed in its condemnation. Elsewhere, Stott defines the wrath of God as his righteous reaction to evil, his his implacable hostility to it, his refusal to condone it, and his judgment upon it. This is serious stuff, my beloved. God is perfectly righteous and pristinely holy. How could he respond with anything else except a pure intention to destroy sin? And yet, today, we live in immoral times when people want to have the freedom to do whatever they want to do whenever and with whomever they want to do it. Perhaps we should say they're accurate to say, more accurate to say they're actually amoral times. When people don't give much thought at all to whether what is right and what is wrong. This is especially true in America. Where people generally like to think that what they do is nobody's business but their own. People often take offense when they are challenged in any particular area of personal morality. They will indignantly respond. What's your problem, they say? It's no big deal. People certainly do not want anyone to bring God into the discussion. They talk about the separation of church and state, but often what they mean is the separation of God from our daily lives. I mean, what business does God have telling us what to do anyway? If people believe in God at all, They like to think of him as some kind of cosmic Santa Claus who is there to do nice things for people but never to disapprove of anything that we are doing. However, if God is holy, and he is, then he must be utterly opposed to sin, including our own sin. This is devastating for us because we are guilty of some of the same sins as Solomon was. How so? Our hearts often have turned away from the love of God. Even if we say we truly love Him, we have to admit if we are honest, our spiritual affections often grow cold. 
And yet God has come to us not once, not twice, but repeatedly. How so? Every time we hear his word, he comes to us again, offering us grace and showing us his love. Yet we often insist on still sinning against him. And of all the sins that we love to commit, our greatest sin is going after other gods and selfish and foolish pleasures of this fallen world. We need to understand this morning that the anger of God has real consequences, both in this life and in the life to come. If God is angry with people for their sin, then he will certainly punish them for it. This is part of sin's tragedy, and that it eventually will lead to judgment. And because of God's perfect justice, sinners are liable to suffer the consequences of their sin. And we can see this clearly in the tragedy of King Solomon's life. In earlier days, God had spoken to Solomon using the word if. As in, if Solomon walked with God in holy obedience, then God would establish his throne. Otherwise, his kingdom would be lost. That meant that the blessings of his dynasty were conditional on keeping the commandments. Yet when God spoke to Solomon this time, he didn't start with the word if. He started with the word since. As in, since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Unfortunately, it had become Solomon's regular practice at this point to not keep the commandments of God. And so since the condition of the covenant had not been kept, certain consequences were sure to follow. Solomon's kingdom is going to be ripped out of his hands and given to another. And why did this happen? Because his heart had turned away from the Lord. The issue, my friends, is always the heart. Solomon's heart had left the Lord and began to pursue other gods. The Lord in verse 9 makes mention of the fact that he appeared to Solomon two different times. And yet, as far as we know, the Lord had never appeared to King David. Yet Solomon heard from God twice. That tells us that miraculous manifestations do not produce spiritual maturation. It's not miracles that produce maturity. It's the Word of God. Case in point, David heard the Word of the Lord, responded to the Word of the Lord, and kept the Word of the Lord. David loved God deeply. And so if you're a lover of God... You're on good ground. If you love the Lord and appreciate Him and are thankful for what He is doing in your life and who He is, you're on good ground. But if your heart is not towards the Lord, then you're on dangerous ground indeed. We know that King Saul ultimately had no heart for the Lord. We could say that David had a whole heart for the Lord and maybe Solomon had half a heart for the Lord. Solomon began well, 
but ended poorly, for his heart was turned. Solomon had forsaken his first love despite the fact that God had appeared to him on two separate occasions to bless him and to tell him exactly the way that he wanted him to live. Now, very few people have ever had the rare and the extraordinary privilege of meeting God face to face even one time. Yet this happened to Solomon not once, but twice. At the beginning of his reign and again when he built his famous temple. Nevertheless, Solomon turned away from God. His spiritual experiences did not keep him away from sin any more than his spiritual gifts did. Therefore, God was angry with Solomon for rejecting their relationship. Verse 12, please. However, I will not do it in your days, only for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it away from the hand of your son. God was not an indifferent observer as the king led his nation into spiritual rebellion. God is outraged by Solomon's defection. Firstly, Solomon experienced direct counters with God himself and had felt his love and power firsthand. He could not offer the excuse that God was some distant reality whom he had known through David or some other prophet. Second, Solomon could not say that he was ignorant of God's requirements. Through the written word, his father's instruction, and God's direct intervention, he had received all of God's standards. But all those things did not keep Solomon on course. So here, Solomon once again meets God. But this time, the experience is different. You see, God is not going to allow himself to be trifled with. He charges Solomon with covenant unfaithfulness and that you have not kept my commandments because you had a rebellious attitude. The Lord had repeatedly reminded Solomon that while the Davidic covenant was unconditional, covenant blessing was contingent on obedience. Now Solomon confronted the fact that God would not allow his people to continue in sin, as no good father would. Judgment was certain, God said. I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Tear away indicates that the removal will be forceful and even violent. Now that word tear is going to become a key word in our passage. It's an appalling reminder of an earlier day when the prophet Samuel said almost the identical words to Saul when he said, The Lord has torn away the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. That neighbor turned out to be King David. Could it be now that David's son has become no better than Saul? Was the Lord about to deal with the disobedient Solomon as he had dealt with the disobedient Saul? Only one thing keeps Solomon on the throne at all, and that is the promise that the Lord had made to David. For David's sake, the Lord allows Solomon to remain in power. Furthermore, for David's sake, his descendants will continue to rule a fragment 
of the covenant nation. But despite these concessions to David's memory, however, the punishment is clear, irrevocable, and stunning. Solomon's sin will soon call his nation to crash from the heights that it had achieved. His idolatry will lead to idolatry among the people. Israel has at this point begun the long road to exile, though they do not know as of yet that their actions entail such consequences. But Solomon had the knowledge that his own son would pay the price of his failure. I will tear it out of the hand of your son, yet for David's sake justice or judgment would be mitigated. Despite God's righteous anger, this chapter highlights God's faithful application of the Davidic covenant, and it points to a particular historical situation. The Lord in this is so consistent. Now, we're not so much used to that sort of thing. Once in the House of Representatives, Nelson Dingley of Maine was speaking in favor of a tariff bill, for he was an ardent supporter of trade barriers. In his speech, he scourged Americans who shirked the rigors of the custom laws by making their purchases overseas. But while he continued his scolding, Jerry Simpson from Kansas quickly reached, reached under Dingley's desk, pulled out Dingley's silk hat, and held it up for all to see, and the label said, Made in London. It's one thing to have a distinct policy, and it's another to apply it consistently. Yet that is precisely what God is doing in this text. But in doing so, he is being faithful in ways that we do not usually consider. What do I mean? He is faithful in his judgment, faithful in chastisement, faithful in wrath, faithful in jealousy, and faithful in severity. And yet, is he not deserving of praise for all this, being a true God to us? Look at verse 13. I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. As I said, were it not for God's covenant with David and his love for Jerusalem, he would have taken the entire kingdom away from Solomon's descendants. But God had promised David a dynasty that would never end. And therefore, he kept one of David's descendants on the throne in Jerusalem until the city was taken over by the Babylonians and destroyed. Now, of course, the ultimate fulfillment of that Davidic promise is in Jesus Christ. God's name was on the temple, so he preserved Jerusalem, and God's covenant was with David, so he preserved David's dynasty. Such is the grace of God. As faithful as he is to be angry and to judge sin, he is just as faithful to apply mercy and grace to anyone who asks. In fact, James says that mercy triumphs over judgment. The main point for the church, however, is that what we see particularly in 1 Kings 11 is true universally. Namely, history is under God's control. Clearly the principle is that God's judgment does not involve cancellations of God's promises. 
When God announced judgment to Solomon, he placed two restrictions on it. Not now in verse 12, and not all in verse 13. Despite that, however, judgment is coming. And it all started slowly with Solomon being seduced by his desires. And that is a danger that every person in this room faces this morning. You see, one of the big problems with using moderation of sin as a justification for whatever you want to do is that it's almost impossible to take just one bite when you're really hungry. Solomon, for example, was obviously hungry for power and influence on the world stage, so one treaty and one foreign wife was never going to prove to be enough. One good bite led to another and another and another until he ended up with a thousand foreign women in his harem and now judgment has arrived. Now to my way of thinking, this is scarier than anything else. History shows us again and again that God just doesn't sit back and watch as sin managers operate. In the same way you and I might hunker down with some popcorn to watch a movie. He watches, yes, but he also reserves the right to actually get involved. And when he does, it's not pretty. In Solomon's case, we're going to see that God started raising up enemies to oppose him, which we're going to look at next week. Now, in David's case, God sent the prophet Nathan to deliver a stinging rebuke and announce a series of dire punishments. In Ananias and Sapphira's case, God just struck them dead. This, then, is the ultimate miscalculation that the sin manager makes. She thinks she is shrewd enough to keep the sin and the people in her life well managed. What she forgets to factor in is a living God who sees everything and doesn't take kindly to sin and who, contrary to popular belief, is not endlessly tolerant. So right now, if you have been managing your sin, you need to understand that you are on thin ice and that ice is melting even as we speak. We really only have one good option, and that is repentance. Repentance is one of the most important and least understood commands, I think, in all of the Bible. Sometimes when I talk with people who want to accept Christ, I ask them if they know what repentance is. They almost always define it as being sorry for your sin. And certainly there is an element of remorse involved but true repentance is so much more than that. Let's say I come home drunk one night, I'm not going to, and run over my neighbor's mailbox. Well, the next morning I realize what I have done, and I feel terrible. So I go to my neighbor and apologize. Then I buy him a new mailbox and install it. In fact, I buy him a, a better mailbox than he ever had before. So right now, he has the nicest mailbox in town. Have I repented? Well, I've shown remorse and made restitution, yes. But have I repented? Not if I go out the next night and get drunk once again. 
By definition, repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. One of my favorite scriptures about repentance is 1 Corinthians 6, 9, which says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Now, repentance is not what saves us. Grace is what saves us. But repentance is a response to that grace that makes us having received grace and makes us different from what we were before. I'll say it one last time. If you're a sin manager, I plead with you to repent before you come to your own moment of humiliation. Don't be fooled by the success you've had keeping your life all together and your friends and your family members in the dark. Sooner or later, you're going to make a mistake or God himself will step in and bring you down. But don't take my word for it. Consider the warning of the guy who wrote the book on sin management. None other than Solomon himself. He said in Proverbs 28.13, People who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and then turn away from them, then they will find mercy. To finish up today, we need to see that all people everywhere have been just as foolish as Solomon was in different areas, and there are consequences. As the Apostle Paul in Romans begins his majestic exposition of the gospel in which the righteousness of God is revealed, he emphatically asserts the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Listen to this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. For us, as for Solomon, the wrath of God is more than a religious idea. If we do not repent and turn away, we will eventually experience the consequences of our foolishness. But the wonder of the gospel is that God's promises are not destroyed by our sins and their consequences. And faithfulness to his promise so long ago, a son of David has come who delivers us from the wrath to come. If Stephen Longu was here this morning, I'm sure you would hear an amen from him. Remember him from our opening? The story of Stephen Longu ends with this kind of rescue. Earlier I had described how Lungu went to a meeting armed with explosives and ready to use them. But listening to the preacher, he came to the sudden and painful realization that God was angry with his sin. Yet the evangelist did not stop with the wrath of God. He also preached the compassion of Christ. Suddenly I began to understand what Christianity was all about, Lungu later wrote. Jesus had suffered in all the ways that I knew so well. 
poverty, oppression, hunger, thirst, loneliness. I'd known all of these, and so had he. But the amazing thing was, he had not needed to know such suffering, but he had accepted it in his love for me. He had come to earth for my sake and to pay the price for my sins. My wages were death, but Jesus paid the price for me. Longu finishes by saying, Yes, this is what Christianity is all about. The tragedy of our sin has fallen on Jesus Christ. Although this morning we are all guilty as Solomon in different areas, there is forgiveness for us through the cross. And therefore we can be saved from the wrath of God to live happily ever after. Let us pray. Lord, I know that some sermons are hard. This was one of those. Part of what you tell pastors to do is to warn the people. And as we go verse by verse, that's how we do things. And this week was a week about warning that any of us who have deceived ourselves into thinking that we are okay, that you would open up our eyes and let us see us where we truly are. And Father, that you would just let us realize the great love that you have for everyone in this room. You only want the best for us, which is holiness and eternal life with you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.